Hello everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're here with episode 93. I'm Liam. And I'm Leanne. And it's Lisa's turn to have a well-earned break this She's week. A little lie down, maybe some cocktails. Oh God, well hang on, that, that's not what these breaks are meant to be for. She should be going off and doing important work, not lounging around having cocktails. So we'll follow that up with she her probably immediately. Is working hard at the keyboard, doing something very important. Of course, that is what she's normally doing most weeks. Exactly. Um, but we've got uh, a good show this week. Um, we've we're going to be crossing later to um, Leanne's reflections on day two of the AJEC symposium. Thanks so much for for the last week's reflections on day one. Um, I think it's you know great for people who couldn't make it. I had a really great time listening to them. I, I, basically, I just enjoy parts of the podcast that I haven't had to do because it's like new episodes for me because I, I, <laughs> I'm either talking at this bit or doing a lot of the interviews. So it's like a brand new episode for me. Thank you for that. Oh, that's nice. Happy to be of help. <laughs> and, and then really excitedly, I had a great time conducting this interview with uh, Forrest out of our school, um, out of school hours care or on their, their, on their recent uh, um, announcement that they'd received the excellent rating, one of only three school aged care services in Australia to receive it. And they're locally based here in Canberra and I've um, known the director for a little while. Uh, so I had the really great pleasure of spending the morning at Forest and then recording an interview with three of the team members there. So um, I really hope you enjoy that. And that's um, wonderful, Liam. And what was the what? I mean, that's incredible with such a small number of services receiving the excellent rating. So it's obviously a a really big deal for them. What what do you think was most important to them about receiving that excellent rating? I think you know. There's, I think there's the obvious things, which is the kind of recognition. And I you know I've got to say, and I, I, I'm tempted to. Uh, You'll know if I'm lazy or not when you see this episode. I'm tempted to like scroll out the early education show on our cover and say the mid, the middle education show or the school age care education show. This is, feels like the school age care takeover because, um, you know what I, I've always felt. You know we have huge advocacy battles in early education. We have huge uh, issues with professional recognition and responsibility. But I think that conversation has shifted in the last you know ten years or so. The NQF has been a big part of that. The universal agreement for preschool. I think we can say that even though there's there's there's, there's specific issues. I think the the um, the the recognition of how important early education has changed. I, I I do take my hat off for the people working in school aged care. I think they are the poor cousin, even to the poor cousin of the education system. They do incredible work with you know with some amazing um, children, and they don't get a huge amount of recognition for it. So you know this this interview in this episode was really about sort of adding to that recognition and maybe um, bringing that school aged care experience to people who may not have heard it. I've never worked in school aged care. I was fortunate when I managed the inclusion support agents in the ACT. A lot of my work was with working with school aged care educators and I'm always just blown away by how you know the incredible work they do under some really tricky circumstances you know they're at the mercy of the relationship with the school you know if a principal comes along who just doesn't get school aged care then their entire relationship with the school is upended and, and principals have the power in that relationship they're often given the sort of you know the dodgiest building or the crummiest building to work out of or the hall but um, they do some absolutely incredible work and, and you know Forrest obviously given their rating um, do some really amazing stuff so uh, I'm looking forward to people hearing um, I guess probably answering that question from their perspective in terms of what they thought you know that that, that Forrest does amazingly I did have to prompt them several times to talk themselves up a bit um, <laughs> which <laughs> I always yeah, love doing. Yeah because they, that's right because they're very modest that's very true and um yeah, I know for my children, you know, I really appreciated the outside school hours care that they were uh, in and, and the staff were absolutely wonderful. And they did operate out of this very small building, which had once been a scout hall on the school site. And in the Como fires in 1994, the whole school was 
razed to the ground. Wow. Except <laughs> the building that that was sitting on there that the outside school hours care operated out of. That's incredible. Isn't that amazing? So in actual fact, that building became a bit of a central focus for the school for a, <laughs> while it was being rebuilt because they, they literally rebuilt it over the over a period of two months to get it back up and running. Wow. Um, and, yeah, and that, that one little building, which was wooden, was <laughs> on the site. That's kind of like getting an excellent rate rating from the forces of nature or something. Exactly. The universe was sending that outside school. That's right. <laughs> That's amazing. But um, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with my interview with the team at Forest Out of School Hours Care. So stay with us. Okay, well, I'm very excited to be sitting here in the staff room area of uh, Forest Out of School Hours Care here in Canberra. Um, I'm here because uh, in January, so a few weeks ago, Forest became uh, the third centre in Australia to receive, the third school aged care centre, I should say, to receive the excellence rating. Um, now, obviously, we're the early education show. We primarily sort of work in the birth to five space, but um, this is a really incredible achievement for this for this program. Um, and I think it really speaks to how amazing school aged care is well. So we wanted to devote today's episode to um, breaking beyond the birth to five. So this is like the middle the middle education show. It's, it's a takeover. Um, and I'm here with three of the fabulous um, leaders and members of the community here at Forest. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So I must start with you, Ali. Hello, my name's Ali and I'm the executive director here at FUSH. I also run all the children's services at Forest. Hi, I'm Kylie and I'm the educational leader. And I'm Carl, I'm the assistant director, or if you ask the children, I'm just an old man that lives at the school. <laughs> That's such a better title. Have you got that on a business card? <laughs> that would be great. My business card just says Carl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Ali. Well, we might start with you as the leader of the centre. So obviously, it's, it's a pretty incredible achievement for Forrest to be one of three centres in the country that has this rating. Um, you know... Go back to that day when you when you first heard that news. Can you tell me yeah, what it question. felt like? What did it feel like to, to get that? Was it a phone call? Was it a letter? Was it an email? Was it a carrier pigeon? How did it how did it actually how did it actually happen? Well, it was written in the sky above our centre, and I walked outside, and there it was. No, they actually rang. Um, to be really honest, I cried. I cried, and could, I'm getting emotional now. I cried for about. 10 minutes and I just she just had to wait because I was I was incredibly proud of our team when you have such belief in a program and the people and the children in the community and to actually get recognized formally like we know we're good but to actually get recognized formally it, you know it's breathtaking and it really was um I suppose we felt validated that you know that we were doing something right we kept it's hard, like it's hard being in this sector. It's hard work. And I think finally we felt like others could see it as well as us. I mean, people see it. I'm sounding mean, but it was great. It was a really, you know, life-changing moment, I think. We're the first wish in the ACT to get it. And that's, I'm really proud of us. Yeah. yeah. I mean, are you hoping some more will get that rating yeah. now that it's out there? You know, I just, it's almost like you've got, I don't know, we just want to help everybody, you know, like we, we had lots of help along the way and we just want to give back now as much as we can. So we're all about children. We're advocates for children, not only in our space, but across, you know, the nation, the world. And so we just want to make everything better for them. So I'm proud of that. We're going to do it. 
Good on you, Ali. Yeah. Well, we're three minutes in and you're already crying out. Yeah. So this has already <laughs> gone. This is my best interview ever. So that's wonderful. But um, so the air conditioner's broken. I think it's that. <laughs> so I might maybe turn out a Kylie. Maybe Kylie, can you give us just you know tell us about Forrest? So you know, who are you? What do you do? Um, what's a, oh, I guess you're yeah. not going to turn yeah. to Carl. Yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to Carl first. One. Go for it. Um, okay, so like our history dates back to the uh, the 70s. Um, we we're really. I see it as having grown really organically um you know i see our service generally as being a really grassroots community-based service you know we're, we're pnc run we're we're all about our one community here it's really wonderful so you know we, we grew out of essentially a group of kids hanging around after school and uh somebody in the school just decided that they would hang out and keep an eye on them and that begun to get more popular and uh you know was slowly formalized into a service i think early on that we had a an old car and a cement mixer <laughs> and a pile of dirt was pretty much all the resources i've seen photos of an enormous cable reel <laughs> and so essentially we had you know what was the beginnings of like a, a bit of an adventure playground um and so some smart cookie along the line formalized that and started charging some money um, I became a part of the service in the 90s, um, and so we were, we were a lovely service, but pretty stock standard in what we were delivering, and it's just been a really lovely thing to see us grow into something far more nuanced, complicated, uh, you know, and, and something that really, um, I guess, you know, we're, we're really seeking hard to meet the needs of our community, you know, and we really delve into that, and, you know, we're really proud of what we've got here now. So I think one of the things that's uh, obvious, Carl, um, this is my first time visiting Forest, um, but I've, I've heard of Forest, you know, as part of the Canberra community for a really long period of time. I think one of the things that's really unique about Forest is its approach to children and the, uh, you know, I, I don't want to put a word in your mouth, but the, you know, the, the approach to rights-based practices with children and placing, placing children at the centre of practice. You know, and you sort of mentioned there that, you know, in the 90s, it was sort of a stock standard centre. It's obviously not now. Like, what do you think's changed between then and now? And, and, and in particular, I guess, around how the service works with children. Oh, look, I think there's just been a general raising of the professionalism across the service. And I have to pay props to Kylie here that she's really brought some, you know, big aspects to our program, which sets us aside and makes us unique. Um, definitely, you know, this rights-based approach is at the heart of what we do with, um, you know, our Playwork-informed program. So I have to say um, a, big, a big part of that is Kylie and, you know, the journey that she's taken our team on. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, Carly. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I think you know that's that's it's where we're going. It's a path that we're on. And I think you know, even within the playwork sphere, is we're doing our unique brand of that. And again, it, I think it comes from that grassroots approach that we're you know we're not for profit. Um, you know, we're run by volunteers. We're for our community, by our community, right here at the heart of our community. Wonderful. It's a good tagline. I might have put that on a poster or something. <laughs> but uh, perfect segue there to now come to you, Kylie, to talk about, you know, um, as the educational leader and obviously one of the leaders of the service um, in general, what what are some of the things Forrest does in particular that you think sort of sets it apart and has led to this, this rating? Uh, I certainly think it's the child's rights approach and that everything that we do is in the best interest of the child. Um, that obviously sits across all of the frameworks and everything, um, but it was finding a, a theory that supported a vision for that that worked for school-age care because I think so many people look at theorists and philosophies and things and you can take bits and pieces from each of them, but none of them really fit wholly for the school-age care sector. Uh, so we started looking at 
things around nature pedagogy back in 2014 um, and through that started um, a program called Beyond the Fence. Without realising it though, we were working more in a, in a playwork style than what we were with nature pedagogy um, and that kind of was cemented when I did a study tour to the UK and visited a number of adventure playgrounds and play schemes throughout the UK um, and discovered that playwork existed and what that was and realised that that's actually what we were doing um, and brought that back and worked with the team to kind of embed that to be the core philosophy. Okay. Can you give us a bit of a summary of what the play works um, for people who haven't heard about it, which is myself included, before I, um, I spent some time talking with you before this interview. Just give us a bit of a summary of what, what that sort of means. So I suppose it's really about um, facilitating the possibilities for play within a space um, rather than adult-led and directed product-driven activities and experiences. Uh, it's also really about um, the adult stepping out of the play, accepting uh, and recognising that children are in complete control of that, that it's an intrinsically motivated thing um, and that we actually really don't have a right to be part of it. Um, we need to recognise it, protect it and facilitate for it. Wonderful. Um, and, you know, Ali, you know, as the leader of the centre, um, looking at some of that, you know, those rights-based approaches and this particular theoretical or, um, uh, you know, process approach to, to exploring children's play, um, you know, Forest is a big centre. So we, I think you told me is around, you know, 150 yeah. children um, every single day. Um, and school aged care, I think, is, is one of the most complicated jobs out there you know even if it's you know quite a small program i've seen some programs that you know only 30 children and there's still a lot that's complex about it um you know what's your what are the what, how do you approach being a leader of, of, a, of a particularly a, a really innovative and, and amazing service like this so you know what are the things you focus on as a leader good question i i'm really proud of the direction that we've gone, I suppose. And I came here two years ago and I was DAP trained. I was very traditional um, practice that we would scaffold learning and that's what we did and that was, you know, we had a set program. So when I came and learned about playwork, it was really challenging for me personally and professionally. Um, and say, that, can I step in there yeah, and say terrifying, I think, yeah. is one of the words that comes up a lot, that, um, you know, getting used to the risk-taking stuff that happens in that... Mm giving children control. Um, even in the early days when we were, you know, trying out play work, um, us old salts at the service were finding us, ourselves continually mm. having to rethink, challenge ourselves, mm. be brave every single day mm. and just sort of, you know, maintain confidence that, you know, this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And I really value attachment. So for me, it was about building relationships all the time. And by doing that, I would be engaging with children and interrupting their play. So I wasn't being respectful of that. So for me personally, it was quite challenging. But I think as a leader, I had to trust my team. I had to trust that we were on the right path. I had to read up. I had to get knowledgeable about it and make sure that I was going with them. Otherwise, I would have been left behind. And then I started to give them some direction about what our actual goals were. We had to get create a vision here. So we were doing the practices, but we didn't know where we were actually heading. Yeah. And so that's when everything, our core business was best interest of the child. And that's why we, we program for everything. Play is open. Every single thing is open. Not one day do we just have one certain activity. It's mm. everything's open. Wonderful. Well, that might be good. And maybe Carl might ask, ask you this, as particularly one of the you know, long-standing educators has worked here. Give me an idea, you know, if, if I was a child rocking up to, to afters at Forest, what kind of... What kind of things would I be doing? What's a, 
I know I know your answer to this is going to be we don't have a standard day at a centre <laughs> at, at, at the program, but you know what kind of things would I be would I be doing? Okay, I mean, so we 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 try and use an informed approach about the, the children that we know and we love and that we have here. So we are having out the resources that we know will get used, but. You would say there are a range of resources that we refer to as loose parts. They can be used for anything that the children want. So, so really, the scope is in the child's imagination. Um, we do have some children who need a little bit of structured stuff. Okay, so that there'll be there'll be a bit of you know paper and pencil and texture and you know, but. It's not product driven. It's all about what they're trying to do with it. Um, you know, we'll have out some toys and some sets of things, but they might end up in the sandpit or in the mud puddle or hoisted in a tree on a rope or dragged behind a tricycle. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, we, we really try and make sure that, um, you know, the children have the opportunity to just explore what they're doing there. So, so you know, outdoor, indoor activity, resource-based, you know, open-ended stuff all the way. Yeah. Well, I think for the early childhood people listening to this interview, when we hear loose parts, we tend to think quite small things, so little little wooden, uh, you know, acorns or something we've collected. I'm not a huge loose parts expert. Um, yeah. I agree with the philosophy, but, um, uh, you know, really small things. That's not quite what we're talking about. Ali has given me the tour of the centre before I came around, and when she mentioned loose parts, uh, they were a little larger than that. What, what kind of things do we... I'm seeing Kylie make yeah, space. She I really wants Kylie to talk about this so i'm gonna i'm gonna turn this over to kylie so we're not talking about little things are we we, kylie you can do um i think the issue with loose parts across the early childhood education care sector as a whole is that people jumped on that bandwagon and completely misunderstood we love a bandwagon kylie in early childhood yeah Yeah, we're this this is now a reggio inspired podcast because you know you're not allowed to do anything in early childhood anymore unless it's reggio inspired correct um so i think yeah there's that idea of they've got to be in the little wicker bar gets colour coordinated and, and set up ready to go, that takes away and pretty. the whole... They have to be yeah, pretty. Be pretty. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. And they've all got to have their place and everything. Um, whereas if you actually go back to Simon Nicholson, who penned the paper on loose parts, it's, it's anything that can move. So your toys and all that kind of stuff that people won't view as loose parts these days are. They can be moved and manipulated. Uh, the things that we use, like your tyres and your cable reels and the rope and everything, have more variables to it, which Nicholson talks about, and therefore more possibilities. Uh, so that's kind of the path that we've taken with it. But, you know, those small bits and pieces are definitely still valued, loose parts, as long as they're given wholeheartedly to the children and don't have an adult direction stuck to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We, we recently got a cage trailer so we can move our loose parts into the service uh, in, in bulk and a little bit more effectively. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they've got old furniture and you know stuff from the the green shed and you know we we really like to fill it up plus you know we're recognizing it's mud and sand and water uh, the loose parts and as required our educators will you know fill a gap in the child's play as needed so well i think people want to find out more about this so i might get you to send me a link which we'll put in our, our, our website for this episode but um Ali, I might come back to you and just talk about the actual, you know, there, there aren't, so there are only three school aged care services with this rating. There actually aren't that many um, in the other uh, the other parts of the sector as well. It's, it's the highest rating you can receive from a sequence. So obviously, it has the least number of services that have it. Can you talk us through the actual, you know, what was the process of applying for that excellent rating? What did you have to do as a service to just, just apply and then receive that rating? 
So I think we've been on this journey for a long time. So when I could come here, I, I still practised that I thought was high quality. What I thought was we was a little bit rudderless, so we weren't actually going in the direction that we wanted to go. So we were, we were existing and being and on all those sort of things, but we sort of weren't becoming, I suppose, enough. So that's where we um we really started. We started really simply. We stuck up huge post-it stick you know butcher's paper and we just started writing what we were good at what we thought we needed more work and what didn't and that was sort of just morphed into our journey um all our team was involved and we had lots of documentation and then we started getting lots of feedback all the time but from our family that we really started to put up and see and read and and that sort of triggered it going actually you know what I think we could do this we've got enough here look at this and then when we read the criteria, we all collapsed in a heap and went, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> but then we started unpacking it. So we put all the criteria up and we started moving these post-it notes to each criteria about where they, oh, sorry, where they fit. And um, and it was sort of a journey from there. And then we split it up. We all put our names next to what we thought was our strength area of writing and that's where we went from. So it was a joint collapse. So it wasn't just you sitting no. in your office away no. from everyone writing this application. No. Everyone contributed. Yeah, yeah, that's what's wonderful about it was all of us because we're a team. We're not about me. Yeah. Yeah. Some of all our parts, yeah, like said in the yeah, article. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. sum of all our parts. So I think once we got our two um, leadership values going and we're, what we stood for, we just needed a col- collaborative vision, I think, and once we decided what that was, we were on this journey and there was no going back. So can you tell us about those those two leadership values you just mentioned? Yeah, okay, so... The first one is the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. So we were saying, well, if you walk past that and you do nothing, you're saying that's okay. And I stole that line, but I think, still think it's a great line. Yeah, it's well worth stealing. Yeah. That's a good line to steal. I think he stole it too originally, so I don't know where it first... I know David Morrison said it, yeah, but I don't know where it came from originally. So I stole that, and we have that up on our wall, and it's at every staff meeting. And what it did, though, it gave people autonomy and permission, if you like, to correct things that weren't right and a sense of social justice about things. And that's what I loved about it. It empowered everybody. There was no hierarchy with that comment. You know, it was like, you have a right to fix that if you're not happy with it. And um, and we say that to the children too, you know, so it empowers them. And our second one, which is all our legislation is based on our law, is um, the rights of the child, the best interests. Everything we do is in the best interests interest of the child. So we, we go back to that time and time again when we're programming, when we're talking, when we're in staff meetings, team chats, we always go, hang on, is this in the best interests of the child? Yeah. And that's, that's our grounding force, I suppose. Wonderful. And so then what did you actually... Um, so you were collecting all this information and everyone was sort of involved in and you'd identified those values. Um, what, did, what did you sort of actually... Uh, send to a sequel. What did a sequel receive when they were assessing whether Forrest needed to be given the excellent rating? What did they get? This is really exciting. So we tried to be really innovative because we're so innovative not. But anyway, we we um actually we're going to do a prezi, which is like a interactive sort of PowerPointy thing on the internet. But then we realised that the photos weren't secure after a year, and we thought we might end up in court. So we changed our <laughs> idea on that one. Um, so then we went with a PowerPoint and we embedded um, film clips, documentation, um, supporting statements from other services, um, photos, clips of training, and um, it, oh, it was really beautiful. Actually, it's it's a really it's huge. It was like two hundred pages, way too long, you know, like, too much effort. But um, 
I think I think it's spectacular. Like I look at it for fun. <laughs> Ali can't watch it without crying. <laughs> yeah. So there's one film clip which sort of at the end um, we actually got the children. Um, one of the children wanted to read a story about how we become what we are, wow. and that was really powerful. And she narrated that, and it was, um, you know, once upon a time, the magic of playwork, and it, it came along that story of an educator that used to work here, that wanted to play Warhammer one day when that was out, and um, he turned up the next day and it wasn't out, and he wasn't allowed to get it, and it was about his journey. So we followed him as a educator, um, as a child, sorry, as a child, and now he, then he came back as an educator, and that was really powerful and um, that was pretty special but there's a great film clip at the end of just a day at Fush and um, it's mess and all it's food falling on the floor it's children disagreeing over you know <laughs> items of equipment it's children snowboarding down the grass hills after they'd made their own slide it's billy carts it's just it's beautiful it's us. Yeah, yeah it is us yeah warts and all yeah um now, I think one of the – looks. so obviously I'm an early childhood teacher and work in the sector and we, we talk a lot, um, you know, 90 episodes worth on this podcast now about the challenges we face in the early education sector. Now, one of the things that's always been – I've been aware of at the back of my head is that whatever challenges we're facing, the school aged care sector actually faces some some significant ones of their own as well. And I think one of them is, um, you know, the, the, the structure of the day. So you sort of have often before and after school care, you have limited amounts of time, your staff are often transient, so they'll be studying a particular mm-hmm. qualification and will be fantastic, but are probably likely to be mm-hmm. going. We were talking about some of your staffing woes this mm-hmm. morning, Ali. Um, so as an educational leader, Kylie, one of the one of the big challenges in school aged care is quality area one, where what are, you know the documentation requirements. You have people that may not be seeing you know children's learning as their end career, but they're doing a great job while they're here. So, as in, how do you approach, particularly a large service, how do you approach the educational leader role? What do you focus on in terms of supporting the team here in, in with quality area one? I don't know that lucky is the right word for it because <laughs> I certainly worked very hard to get the role to look what it does today. Um, But I think a big part of it is that our service recognises the importance of that educational leadership and that it needs the time to be able to do it. So I'm out of ratio for 32 hours a week. I'm on the floor one afternoon a week. um, And that's in itself a mentoring and and role modelling capacity there. Um, But having those hours means that I can be out on the floor. The training happens day in and day out across every shift and it's not once a week check-ins or once a term check-ins with with your team that are here once a fortnight um so we have our you know regular daily training and mentoring happening through that role um which goes a very long way to getting them um on board with everything that they need to recognize whether it be regulations or our philosophy Um, We also hold three internal professional development sessions a term for the entire team, whether they're casual and here once a fortnight or here every day. Um, And part of that is setting up individual training needs analysis for every member of the team, um, which then inform what we put into those professional development sessions, as well as a rather sizable budget. We're quite lucky in that regard for external professional development as well um, and the support of the PNC to make that happen. Wonderful. And then, look, Carl, you know, you've, you've, you've been here 20, almost 20 years, is that all right? So, 20, <laughs> 21st year, I'll be finishing up uh, sort of, I think, what's about April? Is that Yeah, I'll have completed 21 years here. So we were just, Carl, talking about all those challenges that exist in school aged care and all of the, the things that, um, you know, uh, that we can... It's, it's very easy, I think, in, in, 
in discussions about school aged care, I think it's often easy to get bogged down what the challenges are. And one of the great reasons I want to talk to, you know, the team of Forest is, you know, there's also, there's, there's a positive success that you you have that excellent rating, but it's what sits underneath that. It's that you know this is a incredibly high quality innovative children's service where children are getting incredible outcomes. But, you know, but but as an educator, Carl. My question is pretty simple. Like, why, why are you still here? Why, why are you, why are you? <laughs> I'm not suggesting you need to go anywhere. I'm just saying that obviously you're still here for a reason. Obviously you keep coming back to Forest every day. Um, you know, why is that? Okay. I mean, look, this is incredibly rewarding work. Um, you know, like I said, I mean, it's part of being a community. We are, we are in the lives of these children. We are significant people. The number of families that I talk to who say, we don't hear about school, we just hear about afters, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that's, that's a regular thing that comes back to us. And, um, you know, Why do you think that is, Carl? Like, so you, this is where you're... By the way, the three of you, you're allowed to talk yourselves up. Why, why, so that's incredible to me. So I'm not surprised, but why, why, why do you think children are saying that? Um, I think we've always done a really good job at allowing them to have some control over their time with us. Um, the rigours of school and the you know, routine they go through, um, you know, that's like their job that they go to. They don't want to go home and talk about that. You know, they want to talk about the fun that they had and the things they did with their friends and the food that we served them. And those are the big things in the forefront of their mind as they head home. So, and yeah, look, I mean, I, I think we've always done a really great job managing our, um, like building our relationships with our community here. And I think, you know, that's a big part of why I've stayed around. Um, you know, I, I trained as a high school teacher and when I got to the end of that, I asked myself, well, where would I rather be? Like, what's, what's, what sort of environment do I want to spend my time with? You spend more time at work than you do with your family. And essentially, I feel like this is my second family. You know, I have so many great friends here, been so lucky, uh, so privileged to be a part of a lot of great families. And, you know, that's, I think it's reflected in the way that our staff, like we, we mentioned, um, you know, the child we called little Johnny in our application who I looked after back in the 90s and early 2000s who then came back to work for us and became one of our finest educators ever. Um, we, we currently have uh, another family member of theirs working for us as well. Um, at times we had more than half of our staff were children that I'd looked after. Um, I'm currently looking, we're currently looking after a girl whose mother I looked after when I first started here as well. So, you know, that's, that's something, I don't know where it fits on a resume, <laughs> but, uh, you know, maybe more in a, in a eulogy. <laughs> maybe a fun, a fun fact at yeah. the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, that, that's why I'm here and that's why I keep doing it is, um, you know, it's the great community that I'm a part of and the way that they welcome me with open arms into their, into their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I think that thing that was touched on with relationships there and the, the honour that it is to be here and to yeah. work in this role. I think a lot of people are often frightened of taking something like a playwork approach on um, and certainly it, it goes against the DAP training in terms of those secure attachments and relationships and it's not until you start to work with it and you see the benefits of it um, that you realise that actually those relationships get built through that. We've had a lot of services do I couldn't work in a playwork approach because you can't build relationships because you can't talk to the children. And it's a misconception completely. It's, you know, the children feel like they truly have a sense of belonging in our space because they have ownership over their spaces mm. here. They control what happens. They yeah. do. Yeah. And they recognise that we have a respect for them and what they want to do. And through that, the relationships that we build with them are priceless. Mm. Mm. And where, they're, where the play cue 
so they come to us and they use us as a loose part. You know, so that's, <laughs> I think that's beautiful. I love that educators are the loose parts themselves. Yeah, yeah, Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. There's a headline there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, we'll, we'll, we'll probably wrap up soon, but Ali, uh, you know, I want to finish with you. So yeah. you are now, whether you like it or not, Ali, is one of the three centres that have this rating. You are now a leader in the school aged care sector yeah. nationally. So congratulations yeah, on that. Now, yeah, yeah. Fa- I do like it. I do okay. like it. I do like it. <laughs> the... The, the foundations of this, of this podcast uh, have always been advocacy. So we've always talked about advocating for children, for educators and for the early childhood sector. So we can't not have you know, a leader in the school aged care sector nationally on the podcast and not talk a little bit about advocacy. So yeah. um, you know, what do you think are the biggest you know, challenges facing school aged care? You know, for, so maybe in the ACT or, or, or nationally that you think you know, need to be addressed with some advocacy or by, mm. you know, getting the, getting the government down to spend a, yeah. spend a day here? And what do you think needs to be... We, we need to be thinking about for yeah. school aged care. I think we're the poor cousin. I think we're the missing generation that um, we don't get enough credit for what we do. We're not regarded as education. Um, I've had people tell us that education finishes at 3 o'clock, you know, and, that, and that's tragic. I don't think we have support. I think all our government legislation goes against us in terms of, you know, signing in and out, all those little fundamental things that go on. I don't think there's enough support or training for the sector. You know, that was one of the things we took on board, that we offered free training, you know, and we we brought the cost of that because we thought it was worth it because we're advocating for everybody, not just us. Um, so I suppose in terms of advocacy, we, we've got some huge ambitions to go ahead, haven't we? We're, we're looking at um, doing a um, varying ability sort of employment program where we're working with ACT Downs Association to try and get some um, people with varying abilities working as educators to truly, you know, inclusion, it's such a fine line between <laughs> inclusion and exclusion. So I think if we can actually have educators with varying abilities um, I think that would be of a great benefit. So we've been working with that. Um, we're looking at presenting and doing some other innovative, you know, professional development free for other people to come along and see. We we do immersion practices where we swap staff and we go to other services and so we learn from them, they learn from us. We're, we're not perfect. We don't know it all, you know. We're just on this role and we're loving it. So we want to make a difference and I think we are. Okay. We may not be perfect, Ali, but you are legally excellent now. So that's that's formal. That's on a piece of paper. So I want to um, thank Ali, Kylie, and Carl from the excellent uh, Forest team. Thank you so much for your time today, everyone. Thanks, Liam. Bye. All right. Thanks so much to Ali. Kylie and Carl. It was really, um, it was it was a privilege to spend the morning with them and then have uh, the discussion. That the, the interview we recorded was about half an hour, but I think there was about another hour and a half around that, which was just uh, chatting. And I kind of wish I'd hit record a lot earlier. But they they are an incredible team and they do some really amazing work for the for the children of that service. But we'll uh, we'll now go to to Leanne to do a quick intro to uh, some more reflections you've you've provided on the uh, the AJEC Symposium, Leanne. So do you want to tell us the, the kind of things we'll be hearing about uh, for the next little while? Well, um, day two was uh, fascinating again for me, but uh, differently fascinating as well. Um, and it was really, you know, I think that uh, the reflections that you'll hear around some of the very interesting work that Marin Blair is doing with the Play Lab, and I'll, I'll leave it for you to listen to that and hear what she's actually up to, and that's going to be launched very soon. So that's very exciting for Australian research. And then probably some other um 
research that I'm a little bit closer to because some of my work is linked to that work or it's nested within that work on the complexity of early childhood teacher work Um, and some some great new uh, research that is using things like um, recording devices with infants and toddlers to look at their language and also um, school age care talking service circles. So I'll talk a little bit about those things. I won't talk about my own presentation because I was just happy to get that over and done with at a research symposium. Um, but yeah, there, there was some really great stuff on in the day and I found it really inspiring. So I hope um, people enjoy listening to the reflections. Okay, well, we'll have to commit to one day, Leanne, is to transition you for an episode from co-host to interviewee, and we'll interview you about your <laughs> presentation at AJEC. Well, let's let's wait till it's um, no, let's wait till all the research is done. <laughs> okay, about that? Until That's a, it's, it's a deal. I, I mean, I'm very lucky. I've finished all my data collection for anybody else who's out there in in PhD land, and I, it was just the most wonderful opportunity to interact um, with some incredible services and the work that they were were doing so that that was the stage that was just so wonderful and so enjoyable and um and a big shout out to those services because uh, i know i know some of them listen and um yeah so now now i'm up to the hard stage the really hard stage <laughs> well uh let's uh, segue that into uh hearing your reflections on everyone else who's either at or made it past the hard stage from the day two of the ajax symposium Day two of the AJEC Symposium started with a keynote presentation from Marilyn Fleer. And anybody who has been involved in early childhood education knows the work of Marilyn Fleer and knows how um, amazing she is in terms of research and uh, positioning of early childhood education. She holds the Foundation Chair in Early Childhood Education and Development at Monash University and she's also a Kathleen Fitzpatrick Australian Laureate Fellow and it was this work that she's doing in, in the context of this fellowship that she was talking about in her presentation, Leadership Through Maintaining Multiple Perspectives on Researching in Early Childhood Education, the story of an Australian conceptual play lab thing about this play lab it's is it's going to be really interesting uh, not just for the the near future in terms of research but for um, a lot further down the track and uh, she's this is going to be a five-year study so like me you're probably thinking well what is a conceptual play lab and what what is this what's this actually intended to be and this is her her laureate project and the the information or the detail on this particular project is that they want to build world-class research in into early childhood science engineering and technologies concept formation generate scholarly knowledge about the nature of conceptual play for infants toddlers and preschoolers across a broad range of early childhood settings and family homes and build research capacity and innovations in early childhood science engineering and technologies leading to an international centre of excellence in play-based set learning. So that's a lot of words around a a research project. But I think the the exciting stuff about this is that um, the Conceptual Play Lab is actually going to be a five-year research project that investigates the best way to teach and support young children to form STEM concepts. 
and this is this work's never been done before but it's looking at what the conditions are what are the steps and strategies that educators can use to bring together imagination in play and imagination in STEM and they're actually going to be looking over a five-year period starting with babies and studying or infants and studying um, how they learn concepts informally and at home and also in preschool settings. So I think that this is very much around uh, it's a it's a great story because it's going to be around what conditions actually support children's learning and also the the sort of um, conditions that support this learning around STEM which is obviously so uh, oriented towards our future. Now apart from the amazingness of this conceptual play world which I'll in, uh, Liam will include in the uh, show notes the the link to the conceptual play world which is being launched on the 19th of March and you might even be able to watch that online. Um, Marilyn had a lot of very interesting reflections about early childhood research and she she did start by saying that we we're thinking about when we're thinking about research in early childhood education we must remember that there's actually a very short history of early childhood um, education. It's not long and so our research in actual fact we've done really well with our research given this length of history. She also talked about the need to maintain the diversity of research um, but we also need a space where we develop our own research methods. I think that was something that really excited me because I think that we're such a we have a unique profession, we have a unique perspective um, on children and early childhood education, and we can really be leaders in research methods. This is a, a very exciting opportunity. She urged that we invent and create methods in early childhood education, um, and this is in sorry in early childhood education research. And she also questioned whether we were destroying children's opportunity to be creative when we frame play as learning. I think that's something very interesting to reflect on, particularly as we've always talked about the, the learning through play agenda. But she's wondering whether we're, we're sort of constraining children's opportunity to be creative within this. Um, she urged uh, an investment in ourselves as early childhood researchers, worrying about early childhood education research as an endangered species or early, early childhood researchers. Um, and I think that, that her point is that it needs to maintain that unique um, endeavour and it needs to be very focused on, on what we're trying to achieve in early childhood education without sort of moving into that um, neoliberal space of always having outcomes. concluded by asking who is generating the knowledge about play, who becomes the expert and that we don't just think um, in one direction about research on play. I, I think that she had a, so much to tell us about um, her own history by talking about these things and uh, she's she's just an incredible researcher and an incredible scholar on early childhood education. So there's a great opportunity to take a look here at the um, Conceptual Play Lab 
And I think there's going to be a lot of interesting findings in this that we can learn from and think about in our work in play and our work in in, um, early childhood education. I wanted to give a part two of the Marilyn Fleer presentation because this deals more with the background to um, the research that she's actually doing and the reasons for the research and then also a framework around that. Um, so if you're listening to this one first, go back and listen to the first um, reflection on Marilyn Fleer's presentation. The reasons that, um, some of the founding reasons for the research was that uh, she was thinking about the difficulties that teachers had, early childhood teachers had, in their confidence with um, science, engineering and technology and uh, felt that the teaching models, well they are, actually based on research undertaken in primary schools. So again, it's that unique proposition around early childhood education. It was also uh, positioned as a deficit. If if it was a difficult thing to do and it wasn't and and it wasn't being done well or it was it wasn't working out in terms of teaching STEM or education on STEM, then it was always blaming the victim, who who may actually have the wrong tool. So she wanted to understand how you stay resilient to the constant critique, and uh, one of her propositions is that imagination really matters. Um, and it's, it's not possible to solve the technical problems without thinking about the social. And if you reflect on that and think about what that means is that we can't have always just technical solutions to, um, to any problem and to any teaching problem because we're thinking we've got to work in the social world. She felt an evidence-based model was urgently needed. And, um, and this is where the conceptual play lab comes in. So it is going to be a, a study of conceptual play in science, engineering and technologies. And it's based on three pillars. The first one is concept formation of infants, toddlers and preschools. The second pillar is contributing conditions of family pedagogy supporting STEM at home. And pillar three was an evidence-based model of intentional teaching of STEM in play-based settings. So it's it's a very interesting sort of bringing together of those three concepts um, and, and thinking about how children actually learn and the conditions that are create that under which they learn and that are created for their learning. The Apex Symposium had a series of um, presentations called flash presentations, which were literally 10 minutes of presentation and then uh, five minutes of questions. And it was really great to just have this sort of dip into the research and be able to think about um, and have some questions on what we were seeing with enough to follow up. So one of these flash, flash presentations was a place for smartphone apps in early childhood practice-based research, which was um, presented by Lin- Professor Linda Harrison from Macquarie University. This is a, a study which is looking at the complexity of educator work, and it's been... Um, and it's an ARC project which is going over a period from... I think from 2016 to 2019, 
looking at the complexity of early childhood teacher work through um, the identification of a topology um, that that identifies all of the different work that uh, early childhood educators do and then takes some time samples um, of the work that they're doing and asks them to record this. Now, these sorts, this sorts of work has um, been done in the past and they had someone who was very experienced to support them in the development of the Time Use Diary, which was Michael Bittman, who was from New South Wales University and has done lots of work in the study of household labour and looking at time use diaries. And the reason why they chose this particular approach to gathering data, which is to use an iPhone app or an iPod app um, was to uh, because they could gather a lot of data uh, over a period of time right across Australia and this is being undertaken in centres that are defined as exemplary they've reached exceeding in every uh, single quality area and every element of those of that quality area and looking at how educators use their time they chose the smartphone uh, methodology because it was easy to use and they could um, get some reliable data from a, a sample that was geographically dispersed across Australia. They had 500 eligible services um, and 27% agreed to participate, which was a really great number, with 300 educators using the app to enter data. So it's a, a, a good sample. It's not very costly also to use this smartphone technology and uh, people were able to um, you know, update their time use diary very quickly and easily without having um, things like unwieldy pen and paper. It also gave data across the workday. So they, were, they, they now have 3,000 one-hour records um, entered from 7am to 7pm 7 and um, the, this allows this real sort of scope of understanding of what educators' days look like. At this stage, it's still in the data analysis stage, and I'm pretty sure that there haven't been um, findings yet that have come out of this study. But it was interesting to think about um, how easy it was to use smartphones, what the technology looked like in the workplace and people apparently found it very easy to use. It was something that they could enter quickly and they could actually um, record uh, their time use in a, a very specific way by just identifying what it was within, uh, within the list that they had been doing for that period of time. I think that there is some uh, interesting things to look at up ahead in this and they're, they're looking at those is that they you know looking at the multiple um, multiple activities that an early childhood educator does and the sorts of um, things that they are doing included in their teaching and caring role. Another flash presentation was from Kerry Smith, who is a lecturer of, uh, in the School of Human Services and Social Work at Griffith University. And uh, her presentation was on realistic evaluation, examining talking circles in school-aged childcare. 
And this, uh, I think, was great to see uh, the research on um, school-aged childcare and or outside school hours care, which Liam has uh, obviously done the interview with the wonderful team from uh, Forest Outside School Hours Care. This particular piece of research, um, or the flash presentation, was focusing on the method, the methodology of talking circles, and it had a, a couple of different um, different outcomes uh, that that she found it was almost like this is let's have a look at the this method but let's also see what outcomes we have uh, with the children in this particular method. She used something called realistic evaluation which is a theory driven approach to the evaluation of programs or interventions. Um, she wanted to understand children and educator perspectives on talking circles and to also identify the underlying mechanisms that contribute to the talking circle outcome as identified by the participants. I think people understand talking circles to be um, this sort of opportunity to dialogue and talk and this was undertaken with the, the children um, she was looking at the potential of the talking circles and talked a little bit about um, the engagement of the children in these talking circles and how long that was sustained for, which was interesting because it's that kind of idea that you've, you're sust- if you're going to get the benefits from something, obviously you have to have sustained practice and what does that actually look like for children in outside school hours care. Um, the... The findings that she has will provide the outside school hours care with evidence on talking circles, how they have the potential to support children's right to be heard because they have a voice in their setting or their service. And that also is consistent with outcomes um, or with the idea that quality um, is achieved in, in outside school hours care services. So it's that... It's that duality of the outcome in that children have a right to be heard and this can be achieved through the talking circles, but that's also a a high indicator of quality in outside school hours care services. Regular listeners of the Early Education Show will recall when we spoke with Sheila Degatardi about her work in... um, looking at infant and educators' interactions in early childhood settings. And uh, there was a fantastic conversation article as well. I think it was a conversation article. I will have to search that out um, and see uh, if I think I'm pretty sure that's what it was. This particular presentation, again, was a flash presentation. They're very short, so you try to um, hear a lot of information in a very short space of time. Her presentation was using innovative methods to unveil patterns of educator infant interactions. And the authors of this work were Sheila Degatardi and Feifei Han. Sheila is an associate professor um, in early childhood at the Department of Educational Studies at Macquarie University. And she has very strong interest in young children's relationships and how they contribute to their early experiences. The focus for this particular um, presentation was the actual technology that they're using. But what, they, what they're wanting to find out is uh, about the quality of language interactions 
in infant rooms and there's a particular they're trying to sort of exceed those studies that have been done in the past um, which are limited to global assessments of the room's interactions or they're focused solely on educators' language use and strategy. And what they wanted to understand is what's the mutual contribution of both infants and educators to the quality of their interactions. So it's looking at an equality of contribution here. Um, so first of all, they aim to develop and trial this um, this particular tool, which was called the Language Environment Analysis System. And it's a little piece of technology that the children wear inside their their clothing and it can pick up um, a, a lot of uh, talk and noise around them. They had seven, 14 infants that were selected from 57 infants who participated in the larger study. And uh, they looked at the quantity and the quality of the teacher talk by using this particular tool. And... Uh, they were able to, the, the system actually codes all of the the language that's used and uh, they are able to consider the quality of conversational interactions for the infants and the educators. They found then um, that there's, there's significant differences between the interaction patterns that involved infants who experienced low versus high quantities of educator talk and they noted that this has implications for understanding the role that both infants and educators play in establishing the sort of potential that they have for everyday interactions. Uh, there is the we did have uh, Sheila Degatardi on speaking with Lisa Liam and myself, and um, it was really interesting. So we'll put the link back up to that particular conversation as well. final presentation at the AGEX Symposium on the Friday afternoon was um, given by Joss Nuttall, who was absolutely the most perfect person to deliver this um, final presentation. It's a pretty hard gig on a Friday afternoon when people are racing off or looking to their leisure for the weekend. So Joss was um, exactly the right person to do that. She has this uh, wonderful mix of um, subtle or well, maybe not so subtle humour, uh, very dry, and also the capacity to bring an incredible amount of knowledge to um, to people. Her presentation had a couple of different, um, I, I suppose, approaches. One was to reflect on what uh, where early childhood research had been in Australia, where it had come from, where it was now, and where it was heading. Um, and then also to talk about uh, her own research, which is a, a part of an ARC grant as well. Um, she, they were looking at the, the reflection on early childhood education research, thinking about growth and development and looking at policy as well. Now, I can't really do justice to this presentation because it was so full and it was so rich um, and it probably would take me another week actually to break it down. But I will just give a few sort of insights or things that I felt were, were important. The thing that came through for me was thinking about the language that is used um, in policy documents and how that 
actually works in early childhood. And the something that um, I hadn't thought about b- before, and she talked about early childhood education being ripe for responsabilisation. And that's good for a neoliberal agenda because what it means is that the, the, the sector has to take full responsibility. So thinking about if the national quality framework fails, who's actually responsible for that? And there's a, a, a kind of an imposition there um, upon uh, educators and early childhood organisations because they they are having this agenda, this responsabilisation agenda imposed upon them. Um, there was discussion also about the multiplicity of early childhood research and the sorts of areas that it had covered, professionalism, research ethics, transition to school, play, emotion regulation and the methodologies that had also been used which were quite diverse and and very um and and had a a broad scope as well things like ethnography literature review meta-analysis narrative so there was a a good range of methodologies that is being used she talked about early childhood being a mature research field um and that that's pretty impressive given that it has had a short history and that there has been 10 years of the National Quality Framework, effectively the early childhood, um, sorry, the early years learning framework and then the National Quality Framework, which is quite a long time and I couldn't work out where all of those years have gone. Have gone. She asked then, where do we go from here? And felt that there were two risks and two opportunities and those were the professionalism of early childhood work and the conditions for work in, in research and higher education, and also um, confronting uh, the sorts of contradictions that we uh, are experiencing in early childhood education, and also thinking about moving in research from describing conditions rather to transforming conditions. She went on then to talk about uh, the ARC Discovery Project that she is leading uh, called Learning Rich Leadership for Quality Improvement in Early Childhood Education. The, um, The research problem that was identified here is that knowing that effective leadership correlates with improved child outcomes... Um, and how leaders make that particular relationship happen when we have a sector that has staff churn, variation in qualifications, um, high cultural diversity and high demands on emotional labour, which has been in the media lately. So that that's quite, quite interesting. Um, they've got a, a number of different approaches that they're using to uh, do this research, looking at... Um, how uh, how leadership looks in early childhood education and thinking about the benefits of shared leadership and teamwork. Now, I'll put some links up to, um, to this research uh, in the absence of being able to adequately explain it myself. Um, but some of the questions are, how are educational leaders being, construct- leaders being constructed? Um, and again, she went back to this responsabilisation question. Um, so I think that probably it is 
a really good idea to leave it there and just encourage people to think about going to the AGEX Symposium, whether you're a researcher yourself or whether you're interested in early childhood education research. It was just such an inspiring event and thinking about the scope and range of research that's actually occurring across early childhood education and the capacity that it has to improve um, opportunities for us all, for the whole community of, of early childhood education, for the educators, for uh, the leadership in early childhood education and, of course, for the children and families. Welcome back. So again, thanks, Leanne, for, for giving us those reflections. Um, I feel like I was there, even though I wasn't. <laughs> you have to come another time. <laughs> I'd have to. Um, I, I, I don't know what I do my research on connections between Doctor Who and early education practice. There's a niche there. I think I could, could do that. I maybe think a bigger, a bigger ask would be to drag Lisa Bryant along. That would be tricky. As long, look, as long as we don't have to camp anywhere, as long as we can stay in a hotel, I'm, I'm on board. Yeah, I don't think there's any camping at AJ Curran okay. Research Symposiums. You're safe. I'm in, I'm, in good, I'm in good hands. All right. Well, that's it for another week of the Early Education Show. Thank you uh, very much for, for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, so until then, it's goodbye from me. And from me. You have been listening to the Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Leah McNicholas and produced by Leah McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com and while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the Support the Show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.